Uh, for the sake of time, we'll get started. And um, nature of Christianity, but I also want to qualify where, where reason plays a role in faith. And I want to give you a, uh, an example of this that I actually heard just this past Sunday. And maybe some of you heard this too. So I'm, I'm driving home from church. I, I got out of here maybe at like quarter after one. And I had AM800 on. And they had some guys doing a show called Science is Spectacular or something like that. And he was talking about uh, evolutionary theory. And then he was saying, you know, I respect creationists, but uh, there's a difference between faith and reason or faith in science, and he basically said that uh, science is based on facts, and faith is faith. That's why they call it faith. And I immediately thought to myself, how many times have I heard people equate faith with sentiment, or faith with a lack of facts, or faith with a lack of content? People do that all the time. They do it in the church, and they do it outside the church. The reality is that is not how the Bible defines faith. Faith is not a step into the unknown. Søren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said it was. It's not. Faith is not a step into the unknown. Faith is not checking your brain at the door. Faith is not denying critical thinking. That's not biblical faith. That's not how, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know of any major Christian movement that has ever even defined it that way. But unfortunately, a lot of people outside of the church think that's what faith is, that faith and reason are not compatible. And unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of us who've been raised in the West have bought into that definition as well. And so uh, recently I was reading a book um, by a fellow by the name of David Kinneman, who's kind of the main owner with the Barna Group. And uh, in his book, he talks about the fact that one of the problems in the church today even is that when we speak to young people, we sort of present to them a, a crisis. We say, basically, you've got to believe in science or you've got to believe in faith. Which is it going to be? And that, that, uh, that never really has to be truly presented to the Christian. A Christian can actually be a diligent scientist, a diligent mathematician, a diligent statistician, uh, and also be a person of faith because as I hope we will demonstrate starting tonight and in the coming weeks, faith and reason are actually compatible if you understand them properly, okay? So uh, based upon a little book, many of you might have read this book if you were in university, let's say, in the 70s or 80s, and you maybe had some association with uh, Christian groups uh, like InterVarsity. There was a little book that used to circulate, used to be taught called Why? Uh, know Why You Believe by Paul Little. And I want to talk a little bit about some, some material from his book and some other information entitled, Why is Christianity or Is Christianity Rational? This would be like page seven in your notes. So um, a little boy uh, asked, was asked the question, what is faith? And I think I sort of got into this a little bit last week, but some of it might be a bit of review. And in answer to the question, what is faith? He says, believing something you know isn't true. Now just think about that for a moment. When you share your faith with people of alternative beliefs, notably secularists and humanists and atheists, how many times do they sort of bristle a little bit thinking, well, I don't know if I want to be a person of faith because that means I'm going to suddenly become a person of ignorance, right? That's the, that's the perspective that a lot of people have about faith. 
Uh, and fortunately, many believers do possess a faith that is shallow, that isn't reasonable, that isn't particularly rational, and so they contribute to that false notion about faith. But to be a Christian, then, one needs to ask the question, do you have to sort of kiss your brains goodbye? Is it like we go through the week and we use our brains, and Sunday we get to give our brains a rest, and we leave them at the front of the church, and we come in and we just use our hearts and our souls, and then when we go back out, we put our brains back in our heads. Is that, is that what this is all about? I'm going to suggest to you it's not. The importance of rational faith is, I think, very important. We face great challenges in a post-Christian age. Uh, people are constantly asking the question, why do you believe what you believe? What's the basis for the resurrection? What's the basis for the virgin birth? Why is it important to you that God is triune? So not only do they want to know the evidences for the Christian faith, but they want to know why is it that your doctrines are important? What's the rational backdrop or justification for the doctrine of the deity of Christ? What difference does it make? If you say Jesus is divine or Jesus isn't divine, is it just squabbling over doctrinal statements, statements of faith? So we need to know why we believe and what we believe. Now, obviously, uh, you've got to know the what in order to know the why. So you've got to not only take classes like this or grow in the why side of things, you also have to understand Christian theology. Otherwise, you're going to be engaging in rigorous debate with people over nothing. You won't have any content to share. So you need to grow in content. Remember the three-legged stool? The content of the Christian faith, but you also want to grow in the defense of the Christian faith in addition to the practice of the Christian faith. Now, I, I want to make a, um, a, a distinction for you, and I hope that this is a help, helpful distinction when it comes to faith. Okay, listen to this carefully. On one hand, there is the act of faith. Now, the act of faith can actually be wrong. One can be in error or error when it comes to the act of faith. In other words, it's possible to put your faith in something that is false. A false notion of the nature of salvation. So we have people who are trusting in their good works or their baptism to get them into heaven. They have great faith in it. But I would argue that based upon the Bible, their faith... The act of faith is flawed. So we can say as Christians, if someone says, you know, is, is faith really defensible? Well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the act of faith? The act of faith can be flawed, but the object of faith cannot be flawed. So the object of faith, meaning God properly understood, the Bible properly understood, Christian history properly understood, the great doctrines of the faith properly understood, we would argue though, though, those are not flawed. Our faith with a capital F, that's not flawed. But it's true that the act of faith can be flawed. So we just sort of need to make a distinction. There's faith as in the body of belief that is truth. And then there's faith as in the act of faith. The body of faith properly understood is without error. The act of faith may or may not be without error. So I'm sure for those of you, for instance, that have been Christians for a long time, uh, you may have in the past put your faith in something that you believed to be true that you now know was false. Well, the problem isn't with God, it's not with the Bible, it's with you. So the act of faith can in fact be flawed, but the body of true truth is not. Why do people demand 
uh, a rational faith? Well, a clear reason presentation of the gospel, of course, is not a substitute for true faith or a replacement of a work that only the Spirit of God can do in someone's life, but it is the basis of faith. So when we call people to be people of faith, we're saying you need to put your faith in something. God, Jesus, the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, you know, we, we unpack the gospel. We're not just saying become a person of faith. What does that mean? Whatever that means to you. Just sort of have faith. And it seems to me that because we don't say, no, no, we're talking about faith in certain facts and some revelatory events, that guys like the fellow we heard on the radio on Sunday have this notion that faith and reason are two completely different things. Secondly, to most people, an elusive, intangible, invisible God is parallel to what? A non-existent God. If you can't taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, it doesn't exist. So then we need to come to them and sort of break that down and say, not only are there different ways of knowing outside of the senses, and we'll talk about that tonight, but we're also calling you to put your faith in a God who we're going to suggest has revealed himself to us, has manifested himself to us, who in a sense has proven his existence to us. And then, of course, we have moral or, or pride issues that often stand in the way. So we have things like the incarnation, the resurrection. I'm going to present some evidence later in this course that you can present to non-theists or non-Christians to suggest that these things actually did happen. There's actually some historic rational evidences for these two doctrines. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is obviously the one who convicts. So I can't save anybody. I can't transform your life. You can't save anybody. You can pray so you're blue in the face, you can hope, you can wish, you can beg, you can twist arms, but ultimately you can't change anybody's soul, right? So that's the Holy Spirit of God's job. We're not claiming to be able to do that through good apologetics. But at the same time, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. So we are called to give an answer for our beliefs. And believing that he lives in my heart, as the old song goes, doesn't work real well with unbelievers, and it doesn't work real well when you don't feel him in your heart. And let's just be honest, there's times I don't feel him. He seems kind of distant, right? So while our faith is experiential, truth, as in the object of truth, or faith with a capital F, is truth apart from our feelings, whether you believe it or not, reject it or not, there's a body of truth out there that can be encountered. So Christianity or, or truth is rational. Some fail to believe it because they've never heard it presented rationally. That's true. I'm finding this to be increasingly true even as I mingle broadly with other Christians. There's people that have been saved for a long, long, long time who don't know the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And sometimes it's shocking how much ignorance there is in Christianity. We call ourselves people of the book. That's not always true. It's not always true. So we want to present, if the church is like that, then how much more is the world going to be? So we want to present people with a truth rational. I'll give you an example of this. I was uh, studying for um, another graduate degree at a liberal Lutheran school. And I already earned a doctorate, but I wanted to earn another master's degree. And so I went in there, and I had a very brilliant professor. Uh, he was a, a professor of homiletics, which is the science of preaching, basically. And 
there was a number of students in the class. There was a Unitarian. There was a couple Lutherans. Uh, I can't remember what the other person's background was. But we were using the book of Judges, the Old Testament, as the basis for sermon construction. And I discovered, while we were looking at a passage in Judges to devise a sermon, that the other students, including the professor, whose IQ is far higher than mine, who has an earned PhD in homiletical theory, knew nothing about Judges. Never read it. These are graduate students in a Christian seminary. And they actually never read Judges. And I was just kind of floored by that. I didn't say too much because I didn't want to embarrass them. But I, I thought to myself, like, you know, to, to get to a, a, a graduate a, a graduate or postgraduate degree and never to have read parts of the Bible is shameful, to say the least. And yet, I would suspect, and I don't want to, I'm not going to look out so no one blushes. I'm looking here. <laughs> that there may be some Christians here who've been saved for more than 10 years that have never actually read through the Bible yet. Right? They've actually never read through the Bible. And then we wonder why we, we, we struggle with presenting the content of our faith to people who don't even know who Jesus is yet. So it's a bit of a challenge, maybe a little convicting for some of you, but the point is some fail to believe maybe because we don't know how to present the truth rationally. And then, of course, there is uh, the whole conversation about what it means to love God. Uh, Jesus said that we are to love him, amongst other things, with our hearts and our minds. Now, he also said soul and body, but hearts and minds. Now, we, we like to talk about accepting Jesus into our hearts. I'm not sure Jesus really wants to be there until that's been transformed because it's actually, actually kind of yucky. But regardless, we will say to little children, oh, you need to accept Jesus into your heart. First of all, that's a metaphor. Most little kids don't even know what that means. It's strange to them. But why not the mind, too? If we're going to use that, why not say, you actually need to believe in Jesus, little Billy or little Sally. You actually need to believe certain things about him, that he's God. If you say he's not God, you actually are eternally separated from him. You actually have to believe that to be true, to be a genuine, bona fide Christian. In other words, you can't say, well, he's in my heart, but I'm not sure if he's God or not. That's, that's called heresy. And it's a damnable heresy. There are certain heresies that are not damnable. Those are buying into falsehoods that don't impinge upon the character of God or the nature of faith. But heresies that are damnable are the rejection of core truths about God or the nature of one's eternal destiny. So you can't say, Jesus is in my heart, but I'm trusting in my baptism. Then you're going to hell. And, uh, or you can't say, well, uh, Jesus is in my heart, but I'm just not sure yet that he's God. Then you're actually going to hell. I had a dear friend one time that struggled with the, de the doctrine of the deity of Christ. This person, in many ways, lived the Christian faith to a greater degree than some of us do, and in certain ways ran circles around me. But based upon the authority of the word of God, I could say to her, if you don't accept Jesus as God, you are going to hell because your Jesus ain't my Jesus. 
And if he's not God, what business does he have offering things like forgiveness and salvation and all that? So beliefs are important. Uh, conversely, you can also reject God with your heart and with your mind. And to be an unbeliever then is to reject belief, right? We call them unbelievers, not unhearters. Unbelievers because they've rejected revelation. They've rejected a measure of truth. Thus implying, by the way, that there must be truth to be, to, to be believed in. So either we present the truth with uh, the mindset that it's true, or we should stop speaking of unbelievers, I think. So if we're going to be a, a people of belief, then let's present something for them to believe in. But if beliefs don't matter anymore, then let's stop calling them unbelievers, because that's not really their problem, then, is it? So... Uh, here's just some warnings that I wanted to offer. Uh, regardless, of course, if one has all the facts or not, we are still accountable via general revelation. So we should never think, well, let's withhold truth from someone so that they're still okay with God. Because a person is not just held accountable to God because they've heard truth and rejected it. A person is also held, held accountable to God because they've witnessed God's manifest presence through creation. We call this general revelation. And they've rejected it. And you can look at Romans 1.20 for that. And we also need to remind ourselves that a knowledge of, of the facts or the knowledge of the truth does not guarantee conversion either. So there's people who have suppressed the truth. Romans 1.21 and following talks about the fact that the unrighteous suppress the truth. It's the same language of drowning someone. You, you're pushing it down, it's popping up. You're pushing it down, it's popping up. So they suppress the truth. So that's why we also pray. Okay, a few other things before we move into uh, discussion about worldviews. And this, this um, uh, is not in your notes, just some handwritten notes I took. I, I want to talk to you just a little more clearly about how reason works. So what we want to do is we want to, when we're communicating with people who may be confused about the nature of faith and reason and how that all works in Christianity, uh, we, we may want to say something to them like, um, there's a difference between that which is non-rational and that which is irrational. That which is non-rational and that which is irrational. I'm going to write these words up on the board. So you're, with, you're talking to a secular humanist, and they say, Christianity, Christ, the Christian faith is irrational. You ever heard that before? It's irrational. So you say, well, why do you think it's irrational? Well, because it's not provable through the scientific method. Or it's not provable through human sensory perception. You can't see God. You can't smell him. You can't kiss him. You know, you can't grab hold of him. So it's irrational. Now, in fact, this is uh, a sloppy use of language, and it's not true. Because there's a difference between something that's irrational and something that's non-rational. Now, we as Christians should reject anything that's irrational. But non-rational is something different. So what is an example of something that's non-rational but in fact, it is true. Can you think of something? How about this? Love. Now, 
That doesn't mean that there's not rational elements to love. You could choose to love someone who's hurt you. You could write a dictionary, a rational definition of love in a dictionary. And the words you use are rational, they're grammatical. But love actually isn't, isn't something that relates to rational evidences, but everybody knows it's true. Like you, you, you are aware of the reality of love because you've experienced it in the form of you've received it or you've given it. But if you talk about love, it's not really in the same category as the science of the biology of a dog. It's, it's, it's two different things. Or uh, physics. It's a, different, it's a different kind of knowing. It's a different kind of knowledge to do physics as it is to talk about love. And we could give other examples of this. In fact, emotions. Um, the the uh, ability to process color. Scientifically, there's some reasons why your eyes are able to process color why your brain's able to process color. But color in and of itself, if you think about it, isn't, it's nothing to do with rational. It's, it's, it's non-rational. It's in a different category of knowing. And so we can say to people, faith is not irrational. But if you think that faith is experienceable, definable, or knowable strictly by a way of knowing, we call it an epistemology, based upon a scientific method, then you're, you've kind of committed what we call a categorical fallacy. That you're, talk, you're trying to take something that has nothing to do with this and evaluate it based upon this. So you create a system of knowing based upon observable evidences, for instance. That's your system. I'm going to know things based upon observable evidences and hypotheses. I'm going to prove them through a scientific method. And then you take that way of knowing and you apply it wrongly to something that has nothing to do with this category. And that's the mistake that a lot of people make. And a lot of Christians get all freaked out because they're like, oh, there's only one way of knowing through the scientific method. That's the only category that one can possibly know anything and my faith is somewhat different. I believe it to be true, but I'm not sure how it fits in there. And so we get all freaked out and people turn into atheists or they run away from faith or they say, oh, I guess it is irrational. So I have to check my brain at the door on Sunday. So we'll talk more about this. Now let me give you another uh, example of where uh, all knowledge, even that we have in society, is not justifiable or definable or able to be categorized strictly using, let's say, a scientific way of knowing. So let me give you an example of this from law. One can be convicted if it is proven what? Beyond a reasonable doubt. It's actually a reasonable doubt, not even a shadow of doubt. A reasonable doubt that, that you've done something wrong. Now, if one has been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt that they have committed a crime, is the jury or is the judge or are the people observing that saying that it's inconceivable that that person couldn't be innocent? Are they saying that? No, they're not. So a person can be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, but conceivably that verdict can be wrong. And we all know that. 
So it's kind of like you weigh the evidences in a court trial like that. You sort of pile the, the, the good on one side, the bad on the other, and, you, and you, you evaluate, you analyze, and you draw deductions or conclusions that are reasonable, recognizing that it's still conceivable that you're making the wrong judgment call. So, I mean, from modern jurisprudence, we know many, many times people have been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, and later on, all of a sudden, Horatio Cain shows up with his DNA kit, and they're exonerated, right? But at the time, beyond a reasonable doubt, everyone thought that this guy was uh, convictable. So the point is, is that beyond a reasonable doubt, if it's enough to, to convict, it's actually also enough to convince. And I would suggest to you that Christianity, many of the truth claims of Christianity, are really fall more into the category of here's the truth, which seems to suggest beyond a reasonable doubt that this particular truth claim is in fact true. Or here's the evidences that point us towards an incarnated God. Or here's the evidences that point us towards an actual bodily resurrection. Or here are the evidences that point us toward the existence of a divine being called God. Here's the evidences. And if you look at the evidences, you can be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that these things are true. Acknowledging the fact that conceivably... You are wrong or we are wrong. So in, in many of our lives, we don't, we don't live our lives and make our decisions based upon airtight scientific arguments. We, we, we make our decisions based upon reasonable doubt or lack thereof. And in many ways, the arguments that I'll present to you later in the course fall more into that category. Now, if a person does say, no, I'm, I'm only going to look at life through the scientific method, I want to argue based on science, then we actually can say, then read the proofs, look at the terms carefully, and see if they work and are livable. So there actually is a sense in which we can apply the scientific method to our way of knowing or perceiving reality and also arrive at some biblical conclusions as Christians, okay? So that's just sort of an introduction to the way that we know things to be true. That's, that kind of talk is going to come up further and further uh, in the course and hopefully become clearer and clearer. So in other words, I'm going to repeat myself because I think by repeating myself here and there, this stuff will sink in a little bit better and become more, more natural in your thinking. Now, let's talk about worldviews. Um, in the videos that we've played on Sunday announcing this course, I've specifically used two different terms. I've used worldviews and I've used religions. And the reason for that is... Because in the last, I would say, 30 years, there's been a lot of research done into uh, the notion of worldviews. And, and I think in the past, apologetics tended to focus more on Christianity as opposed to Sikhism, Christianity as opposed to Hinduism, Christianity as opposed to Islam, Christianity as opposed to whatever, right? Categories of faith. And we're going to look at those. Those are important to understand. But more broadly speaking, it's also important to understand worldviews. What is a worldview? It's essentially the preconceived notions and assumptions that one uses to view the world. That's a worldview, essentially. So James Sire, in his very well-written book, if you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. It's probably 25 years old now, but well done, called The Universe Next Door. This is how he defines worldviews. He says a worldview is a set of presuppositions, so things that you presuppose to be true, or assumptions, 
And then he says, which may be true, partially true, or entirely false. Which we hold to, and we can hold to them consciously. We can be aware of those presuppositions more subconsciously. They're kind of in the back of our minds. We're not really aware that that's what we think about a certain thing, but we do. They can be consistent, so we can believe in them all the time, every day, 24-7. Or they can be extremely inconsistent. But they, may, they, 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 uh, they basically address the basic makeup of our world. Now, I would propose, as does he, as do most students of worldviews, that everybody has a worldview. It may be conscious, it may be subconscious, it may be consistent, it may be inconsistent. But as we introduce you to what a worldview is, I think you're going to say, yeah, I actually have one of those. Now, because we're, I think we're all evangelical, Bible-believing Christians here tonight, we'll find that our worldview is very much alike on the macro level. It may differ a little bit on the micro, but on the macro and the big picture, we're probably going to be alike. But wh when we talk about this, what I want you to do is to think about someone you know that's, that's not a Bible-believing Christian. Someone from an alternative world, a religion, cult, uh, extreme, like a very distinct denomination, or a secularist, a humanist, an atheist, an agnostic, someone like that, and think about them in terms of how they would answer some of the questions we're going to pose. So what I would like to do is I'd like to introduce you, using some of Sire's material, to the big questions that people ask when it comes to worldviews. Then what we're going to do later on in this course is we're going to unpack some of the dominant worldviews that are in our culture. We're not going to look at every one of them because I said to you this course is about the Canadian context. But I want to look at the biggies that exist in my understanding within Canada because those are probably the ones you need to be most familiar with if you're going to be a successful apologist in Canada. Okay, So uh, here are some major questions that uh, relate to worldviews. So these are uh, called perspectives on life's major questions. One of the big questions that people consistently or inconsistently, consciously or unconsciously ask is what is reality? Now you may never have asked it in those terms, but consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, You've thought about this kind of stuff. Now, there are essentially four different kinds of reality, one could say, or four different ways of defining that which is real. So, there is that which is fictionally real. So, fictionally real is... Something that is presented as reality, see the box, within a bigger box called unreality. So something that is real within unreality. So basically everything on your television, right, <laughs> is reality within a box that's largely not about reality. So you might say uh, Star Trek. I grew up on Star Trek, the old style Star Trek, the James Kirk Star Trek. Loved it. Um, and you could say, well, is Star Trek real? Well, it's fictionally real. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a, 
It's a real show. It's a real fictitious program. But it's not really real. It's fictionally real. It's real within the box of unreality or the Narnia books or you know other kinds of fiction. It's real in a sense, but it's fictionally real. Um, by the way, I think sometimes young people don't really understand that. They think that what they're seeing on TV is real. We even have reality television, which really isn't reality on television. So it's reality within the box of unreality. Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's perhaps pre-planned a little bit. You only get certain angles. You only get a snippet of information. You know, they want to present the characters in an entertaining way. So it's, it's not real in the same way that life at your house is real, right? So there's fictionally real. And then there's, um, when it comes to reality, we can also talk about that which is really real. So, for example, that would be anything that composes a created order. So perfume, trees, bunny rabbits, fish, you... You compose the created order. Like I can walk up and actually touch you and, and feel you. And you're like, man, this, this is a real object, a real person. So we'd say that's really real. It's a different kind of real than Star Trek. And then there's that which is necessarily real. We, we believe it to be real based on necessity, based upon certain... Uh, processes of inquiry that we've gone through, like molecules and atoms. We all believe those are real? Put up your hand if you believe molecules and atoms are real. There's a few at the back that don't have their hands up. <laughs> Wendy Coffin's not sure, okay? But the rest of us believe that molecules and atoms are real. But how many of you have ever seen one? Have you ever seen an atom or a molecule? Okay, Glenn, big telescope or, or microscope? Get, oh, with his glasses, he's got a good prescription. <laughs> um, a couple hands went up, but the vast majority of us wouldn't question that molecules and atoms necessarily exist, but we've ever, actually never seen them. Never seen them. But they are necessarily real because they are sort of the basic constituent parts of that which is really real. So we're told. And then we have a fourth kind of reality, and that is what is called absolute or prime reality. Absolute or prime reality are perceptions of deity, transcendent beings. Now again, we can hold to these consciously, unconsciously, consistently, inconsistently, just like any of the others. But this is a, 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 a category of reality that people commonly subscribe to. That would include belief in God, belief in nirvana, belief in demons, angels, the spirit world, right? So this is called absolute or prime reality because if these things are true, and obviously not all understandings of prime reality are true any more than all understandings of necessary, really, or fictional reality are agreed upon, Absolute or prime reality is considered to be that which is real outside of the created order, apart from the created order, in spite of your existence, in spite of your ability to prove it or not. Absolute or prime reality. So when a person is 
thinking about life and reality, even though we're, we're not necessarily thinking in these kinds of categories, if you think about it, these are the four ways that we perceive reality to be or not be, consistently or inconsistently, consciously or unconsciously. Now, uh, that's kind of important to know because when you're having a conversation with a person from a different worldview or from a different religion and you're talking about reality, you may need to go five or six steps back and start with the fundamental question. Well, let's talk about what we mean by reality because we may be using the terms very differently, but we're assuming that it's the same term. So they'd say, what is reality to you? Okay, well, then you discover that person's view of reality is, in fact, quite different than yours because of their culture, background, you know, education, lack of education, whatever it might be. And if you've ever traveled the world, by the way, you'll discover that reality for people living in Central Asia, especially like India, Pakistan, very different than reality for someone living in New England. It's a different worldview. And if you've never encountered someone with a, with a, a very different worldview about you on the level of reality, it's kind of, it's kind of shocking, it's disarming, and it's hard to have a conversation without getting back to the question, what is reality? So what we'll, what we'll discover, by the way, is when we look later in the course at different world religions, that some world religions emphasize, uh, world religions and, and, and major perspectives on life emphasize certain ones of these kinds of reality over and against one or more of the others. Okay. The second question that worldviews seeks to answer is, what is a human being? Now, you may assume if you're raised in, a, uh, in the Western culture, I know not all of you were, but in the Western world, that everybody's understanding of a human being is the same. You know, we have generally ten fingers, we have ten toes, you know, that kind of thing. But in reality, the question, what is a human being, if it's really thought about, is going to be met with different answers, depending on who you're talking to depending on their worldview. So let me introduce you to some of the common ones. A human being is nothing more than an animal. Have you ever heard that? Put your hand up. Who have you heard it from? Positively or negatively? They could say, we're just animals, but there's a good reason for that, or we're just animals and there's not a good reason for that. So who have you heard it from? Sorry? Okay, some scientists. Did I Okay, some evolutionists. Biology. Okay, so ex explain that. Hinduism. Right. Okay. Okay, so here's a snail, right? And maybe prior to that, there's like a flu germ or something. And then you become, you know, a rabbit. And then you become... 
Okay, then you become a rabbit. Believe it or not, I actually specialized in art in high school. Can you believe that? Okay, lost it. So, and then you become a Dalit. You know what a Dalit is? An untouchable. They're so low in the caste system within Hinduism, they're actually outside of the caste. Some people say there's five castes in Hinduism. There's not. There's four castes, and then there's the untouchables. They're not even in the caste system. So these are the guys you see with loincloths on being sent into sewers to clean out syringes and fecal matter, and that's their lot in life. And then uh, you sort of work your way up. You become, let's say, a Brahmin. And then you enter into nirvana, right? So the, the idea is, is that there's a series, a gradation of life forms that through reincarnation you, you work your way through, and you would never want to help someone be a better rabbit because whatever suffering is associated with being a rabbit is actually necessary so that they can move into the next category, become a, a Dalit. And you would never want to reach out and help a Dalit because the suffering that the Dalit experiences in the sewers is actually necessary for them to become a Brahmin and so forth and so on. So in a sense, life is life. There's gradations to it. And that's just the way it is. There's not like a higher sense of meaning to who you are. Now, this whole idea of being an animal is uh, something, of course, that inconsistently, one could say, Adolf Hitler believed in. Now, inconsistently, in the sense that he took a slice of humanity and he said, these people are worth nothing, so we can experiment on them, we can abuse them, we can lock them up, we can shoot them, we can burn them, we can rape them, whatever else. And this slice of humanity is valuable because they have blue eyes and blonde hair and they're white skin. So that's an inconsistent worldview because using any of these approaches to reality, one might say, how can you look at two beings that are biologically identical and say these people are useless and these people are of value. It's, it's not consistent, but nevertheless, in some way, he didn't, he didn't view the Jews, the gypsies, and the gays as really any, anything more than animals. In fact, he probably treated his pet dog better. Then there is the worldview that says human beings are essentially sleeping gods. So you are a god. You may not know it yet. You need to be told it. Or you need to come to some uh, higher form of knowing in order to realize that you are God. So, for example, we would see that in some of the Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions like Hinduism, where there's also the sense that there's a higher reality. Another uh, group that would, in a sense, believe in this would be Mormons, that uh, you are, in a sense, potentially God at the very least. And you need to realize that and live a certain way in order to become uh, fully God. Then there's the uh, belief that human beings are made in the imago dei, meaning the image of God. So obviously this would be the, the, the worldview, the answer to this question that Christians would uh, believe in. And then human as machine. So... Um, that's very similar to human as animal, but it's focusing more on the utilitarian side of people. So your value is based on your productivity. 
I want you to hear that very clearly. Your value is based on your productivity. If you have a broken machine, you throw it out. A machine is only as valuable as is its ability to do what that machine was designed to do. So if a human being is fundamentally designed or a human being based upon their ability to do certain things, i.e. contribute to society, uh, live independently, speak, whatever the utilitarian quality is you're looking for for that person, and that's what defines them. Now, uh, can you see that worldview, that answer to that worldview question in our society at all? The idea that a human being at the end of the day is valuable in terms of their ability to produce or act. Speak to me. Where do you see that? Dela? Okay, so like Civil War era slavery? Okay, that's a great example. I was thinking about something different. I was expecting a different response, but very good. Um, now, the interesting thing about uh, the slavery question is it's also extremely inconsistent because it was, a, it was applied to a slice of humanity and not to another slice of humanity. But there's actually worldviews that are consistent, I would suggest consistently wrong, but consistent in that they would define all of our values, be they black, white, Asian, in light of our ability to produce. I th think I saw a hand at the back. Sue. Okay, right on. Or, John, you want to add to that? Okay, maybe there's a little bit of that in there. Although I think there's something else going on there too. But I was thinking of the euthanasia question. That when you get to an age where you're no longer able to produce or contribute to society, what do you become? According to this worldview, you become a burden. So you should willfully check yourself out. Or you should be checked out. Now, I'm not talking about someone being kept alive on machines. I'm not a proponent of that. I think if a, if a human body needs to be kept alive for extended periods of time on machines, the plug should be pulled. Because we are, we are uh, in a sense, violating some of the biological processes that God has established. However, that's quite different than someone who is in a wheelchair and can't speak and saying, you know what? You're a burden on society. CPP is already costing all of us too much. Uh, you're costing our medical system too much. It's time to go and get an injection from your physician. Okay. That's a completely different question. But that is a, a belief that some people would propose. And if you're ever debating someone on that, you're not really debating fundamentally the Bible or not the Bible. You're actually debating a question about the nature of what a human being is. So it's the question behind the question, more fundamental question you need to start at. And again, if you don't think this way, well, I'll show you a verse that says you shouldn't do that. Well, this person may not even be a theist, probably is not a theist. So you've got to more tactfully and intelligently go back into the conversation and say, okay, let's talk about the nature of humanity. Let's start there. What, what do you see as... Uh, the, the source or the foundation of your value as a human being. And you have that kind of a conversation. Okay? 
So um, that's the second question. Third question is, what happens to a person at death? <clears throat> now, I, sometimes I meet people that say, I don't think about that. I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time believing that everyone hasn't thought about that on some level. Now, I do think that there are people who don't think about it very much. And um, let me give you uh, an example of this. Um, we have not had very many people die in this church. In fact, I think we've only had three or four Southwood funerals in 12 years. But at my previous church, we had a lot of older people, and I quite regularly was involved in funerals. And so uh, generally what happens is, you know, you have the funeral, uh, you're the minister, so you get in the, the lead car with the attending funeral director and you drive to the funeral home or the, the cemetery. You do the committal and you drive with them back, right? So I would like to take that opportunity driving to the cemetery and back from cemetery to witness to the funeral director. I almost always do. And so I would ask questions like, and I did this a number of times, I would ask questions like, so you know, man, you're around death all the time. Like, does it ever sort of uh, disturb you? I would ask questions like that. Or how do you process the fact that you're constantly exposed to death? So I would ask questions like that, right? And it, and it generates some interesting conversations. But I can't tell you how many times I've asked questions like, have you, have you ever thought about what happens to people after they're gone? Well, what happens is the skin begins to pale and shrink and the nails continue to grow and on and on and on. And they'll tell me stories about some disinterment they did because someone wanted to move their, husband, their dead husband to Florida because that's where they were moving or whatever else. And the time's going by and the stoplights are, you know, we're getting closer. To, I'm trying, okay, end of the, okay. Now, what I mean is, you know, what do you, think, what do you think happens to a human being after they die? And again, they, get, they go back into biological processes or whatever. But if you have time and you actually get them to the point where they realize we're not talking about that, we're talking about the spiritual, the soul, most, of, most funeral directors that I've met aren't even thinking about it. And you think, how can that be? Like every day you handle corpses. You're confronted with the reality of death. And it's just a job. And, and, and it often reminds me of, of Romans 1. We mentioned this earlier, 21 and following, that men suppress the truth. So you might think, well, in that occupation, how can you avoid it? And maybe some of you have never even touched a dead corpse. And so you're like, well, I don't think about it because I'm not exposed to that. But there's people out there that are exposed to it every day that still aren't thinking about it. There's people that are ambulance attendants, paramedics, firefighters, uh, soldiers that are exposed to death all the time, and they're denying the reality of death, they just don't want to think about it. But on some level, on some level, I think at some point, everyone does think about it a little bit, and or at least has a hypothesis as to what happens to us when we die. And here are five dominant answers to that worldview question. The first is that we become extinct. We just, we open our eyes in birth, we close our eyes in death, there's nothing before, and there's nothing after. We just disappear. And a lot of people believe that, in fact. We're just sort of born and we're die. we die. Now, I'm just exposing you at this point to, the, to the, the common responses 
we're going to evaluate the validity of some of these responses. But for now, you're born and you die. That's all there is to it. A second common response is that we either live or die eternally. Um, that should be eternally, not eternality. And uh, that, of course, would be the belief of who? You. <laughs> just, in case, just in case you didn't know that. That we either enter into a state of perpetual life or perpetual death. Uh, another answer to that question is that we're transformed into deity. Now, that response is correlated back to the question, notice how they're tied together, of what a human being is. So if you're a sleeping god, and that's your view of humans, then when you die, you transform into deity. Another uh, suggestion is that we enter into a shadow world. This might have been part of the beliefs of, for instance, the ancient Egyptians, you know, there's some discussion about their understanding of the next world, of what that might be like. Some have even suggested that without the New Testament and some of the later Old Testament books, that some of the ancient Jewish Hebrew believers may have kind of had that idea. In other words, they had a much lesser developed theology of the afterlife than we do. So if you look at some of the oldest books in the Bible, like Job, for instance, and there's a discussion about Sheol. There seems to be some measure of ambiguity about what Sheol really was all about. Now, this shouldn't bother you or disturb you because the reality is, is we believe in a progression of revelation. The further you move through history, the more knowledge of God God has delivered to us. So we, in fact, know more about God simply because we have, no, we have more revelation than someone living in circa... 1500 BC in Shechem or whatever. So there, there might have been some of that there. And then there are those that would say that we become part of a cosmic reality. So we're kind of like um, microscopic uh, droplets in, in an ocean of water. And we've come out of it as a droplet. Maybe we sort of use the idea of like the, the, the water's evaporated. We've come up as this droplet, but eventually we're going to go back into it. And there's no distinctness to who we are. We're part of a nirvanic whole. And this is a belief that somebody in the Indus Valley came up with thousands of years ago as they were picking lint out of their belly button. And it's become a dominant answer to this question in Hinduism and Buddhism and, and some of the other Eastern religions. Now, uh, that's, that's an answer to the question, what happens to a person after death? <clears throat> then the fourth question is, uh, why is it possible to know anything at all? So this is what we call the epi an epistemological question. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy that deals with the issue of how do we know. And there's actually different answers to the question, how do we know something to be true? And then in addition to that, what is truth? So... <clears throat> um, just broadly speaking, why, why is it possible for us to know anything, to process information? There's three major responses to this. The first one is because of evolutionary necessity. So those that believe in 
secular evolutionary theory. By the way, I, I hope you're aware of the fact that there are those that believe in evolutionary theory that also believe in the truth of um, virgin birth, resurrection, salvation, great people that are Christians, right? Now, I, I am not one of those people, but there are theistic evolutionists, people who say, I, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, died for my sins, I'm trusting in him wholly for my salvation, but I also believe in macroevolution. Apart from that, when secular evolutionists try to answer the question, okay, we have amoebas, snails, rabbits, people, everything else. Why is it that human beings have the ability to process information, it would appear, in a much different way than anything else in the world does? Like, where did that come from? Where did thought, essentially, if everything came out of nothing, where did thought come from? Thought, by the way, thought can be rational or irrational when it's used, but even the concept of thought is, in fact, a non-rational concept. It's not irrational, but thought, like love, is non-rational. So, anyway, back to the question. How, how is it possible for thought to come out of nothing? Like, what sequence of events, what stimulus, what circumstances, what setting like what what are how could thought come to be out of nothingness well commonly a, a, an evolutionary theorist would say it's because of evolutionary necessity so in order for us to evolve we had to evolve thought and of course there's a whole bunch of other questions that come out of that well what was the mechanism that said we needed to necessarily evolve like what, what stimulated the, the next move up the evolutionary ladder? But nevertheless, broadly speaking, secular evolutionists would say that thought, the ability to know, was by evolutionary necessity. We just really needed it. They don't necessarily know how or what the mechanism was that told us we needed it, and they don't really answer the question still, how did it come about, but somehow it's a result of evolutionary necessity. One would think, by the way, that if that was true, human beings would be getting smarter. Um, second is, the second answer to that question is because humans image God. That there is a being outside of us who images himself into us. So just like art critics or art historians could go through some gallery and they're so skilled at the, the, the way that a particular writer, uh, painter uses the stroke of the brush, they could say, oh, that's a Van Gogh, or that's a Rembrandt. You and I are like, how'd you know that? Oh, his name's in the corner, that's how you knew. No, they could tell by the, the, the imprint, the style of the, the, the painter on that work of art. So in a similar way, theists, and this is not just us, this is Muslims and Jews and Christians would say that our ability to know is because in some way we image God. Now our knowledge of God, our knowledge and God's knowledge is still different. And in fact, in fairness to an evolutionary um, secularists, secularists, we may want to think about the question, well, 
if our knowl our ability to know comes from God, then why is it that our ability to know is linear and deductive and inductive and God's is complete and perfect all at once? So that's the question for you to think about. And then the third response to this question is, it's not possible to know anything at all. Or at least I'm pretty sure it's not possible to know anything at all. And I hope you see the irony and the humor in that. Because even in thinking about the question, it presupposes that you've known something to be true, at least the words that you've heard that form the question. So it's kind of a counterproductive response. So broadly speaking, most people are going to say it's because of evolutionary necessity or because of because humans in some ways image the divine. So uh, with those four questions out of the way, let's take our 10-minute uh, break.